Good morning, everybody. I'm over here behind the ideal family. Just turn to somebody and say, have a good life. Just bless somebody. Have a good life. You know, I was really thinking about doing the whole message from behind that white picket fence today. I got shut. Well, that's what I said. But I uh, got shut down by somebody in my household. I won't tell you who did that. And I thought, well, look, I could at least read the scripture from over there. I got, that got shut down, too. Anyway. Oh. Dumb dog. Everywhere I go, there's a dumb dog. Yeah, we're good. We'll put him back here so I don't knock him over. Okay. Uh, hope you're having a great day today. We are beginning a series called The Good Life. It's based on the most famous sermon that was ever preached. It was preached by Jesus Christ. It covers Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7. Not only is it a famous sermon, everybody, it just it goes beyond the walls of religion. And it is one of the most famous pieces of historical literature that exists in the world. 2,000 years ago, spoken. Just absolutely phenomenal. Look, think about this. If you're, if you're familiar much with the Bible, then you might have recognized this. Anytime that God wants to bless his people, wants to bless people, he calls them to a mountain and he says to them, here are the things that matter most. So I've entitled this message, First Things First, for a reason. Here's the first thing you need to know. Here's the first thing that you need to apply to your life. Here's what matters most. And so we see that so clearly here in the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with eight blessings, which is really important. We'll get to that in a second. Let's read what it says. Okay? It's on the screen, or you can find it actually in your bulletin as well. Or if you happen to have a Bible or a phone with you, you can find it in there too. Here we go. Jesus speaking. He says, when Jesus saw the crowds, what did he do? He went up to a mountainside. And he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's blessing number one. Take note. What's blessing number two? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These eight blessings have been called the golden chain, the golden chain. Because if you get the first one right, if you get the first one right, everything flows like a golden chain throughout your life. So for somebody who says, hey, God, almighty God, Jesus Christ, I admit it, I am poor in spirit. That the omission of being poor in spirit leads you to mourning. Out of that mourning, it leads you to meekness. Meekness means that you say, okay, God, okay, you know, we suffer with issues of control. We all know this. It's pervasive and all. That's part of the human condition, to control. What it leads to is us being meek. Meek is saying, I give up my control. And out of that giving up the control, then we begin to seek. We don't feel like we have to be obedient to God's word, a desire. We have a desire that takes root in our hearts. I want, I thirst for the things of God. It's the golden chain. It all starts with poor. Poor, mourn, meek, seek. And then there's four more after that, but that's where it all starts. Poor, mourn, meek. Now, why am I telling you that? Because it's going to get really important in just a moment because you're going to say, women, that doesn't work. In just a moment, you're going to be just like me. And you're going to say, no, that that didn't work. Because if we go that route, it's going to really mess up my life. It's going to mess up other people's lives. So please don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say be poor in spirit. Oh, we need to pray, don't we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, wow, this sermon, 
that famous, famous sermon ever preached. What a masterpiece. But it's not a sweet message. It's a radical message. It's a counter-cultural message that starts a revolution. It starts a movement. It's big. It's important. Help us to understand its true meaning. Help us to wrestle with it, Father. Be very present in this place. We need you, God. We didn't come here because we didn't have anything else to do on Sunday morning. We came here, God, because a desire in our heart is to have an encounter with you and to take that encounter and make a difference in this world. Help us in Christ's name. Amen. All right, here we go. God always calls his people to the mountain. You see that throughout the scripture. Moses calls the people to the mountain. Joshua calls the people to the mountain. Ezra calls the people to the mountain. Now the ultimate mountaintop experience. Jesus Christ calls people to the mountain. Most famous sermon ever preached. Not only is the most famous sermon ever preached, one of the most amazing pieces of historical literature we have. People love, love the Sermon on the Mount. They've loved it for years. I want to show you four different people who love the Sermon on the Mount and see if you can guess their pictures, okay? Who's the first person? Anybody know who that is? Thomas Jefferson. We have some Virginians. Any Virginians in the house? Thank you very much. Thomas Jefferson loved the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, this baby nation of the United States of America, everybody should be reading the Sermon on the Mount because it's a guide for this baby nation. Let's all read the Sermon on the Mount. So Thomas Jefferson is all about the Sermon on the Mount. Who's the second guy? Anybody recognize him? Karl Marx. You guys know your history. Now, this is surprising. Karl Marx loved the Sermon on the Mount because he said the ideals of the Sermon on the Mount were so good that Western society, people who lived in the West, should be reading this sermon. Now, let's go to the East. Who's the next guy? Gandhi. Gandhi loved the Sermon. Do you realize that Gandhi based his philosophy on the Sermon on the Mount? Gandhi did. Now, I'm going to give you one more. Let's see if you can recognize this guy. (laughs) Who is it? Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey loves the Sermon on the Mount. He loves it so much, he put it on his wedding ring. Did you know that? Matthew 6.22, from the Sermon on the Mount, the eye is the lamp of the body engraved on it because he loves the Sermon on the Mount that much. And Matthew wants you to love the Sermon on the Mount too, to love it. This is everybody. Listen, listen. It begins with eight blessings. Here's what you need to know. The number eight in the Bible is the biblical number for new beginnings. Okay? So track with me, everybody. So when you start with one, when you get one, and you track two, three, four, all the way down to eight, you begin again. So here's what we're being... It's a constant loop of blessing. It's like a merry-go-round. Like you can never get off the blessing wheel. It starts with the promise for the first one is the kingdom of heaven. The promise of the eighth one is the kingdom of of heaven. In biblical literature, that's called an inclusion. You're on a merry-go-round. You can't get off. You've seen a movie before at some point, some, you know, wonderful, blissful movie where people are like holding hands and they're spinning in a circle and the camera has their face. They say, yeah, ah, you know what I'm saying? And you're spinning in a continuous loop of bliss. Matthew McConaughey wants to grab you by the hands. <laughs> and he wants to spin in a continuous cycle of blessing in your life. Can anybody see that? Can anybody picture? Will anybody say amen? I can see it in my mind right now. Matthew and I. Anybody? Anybody? One amen over here. One amen. Hey, you. Ho! Okay. Spinning in a cycle of blessing and bliss. It's a wonderful thing. You know what that word, we use it so much. God bless you. God bless you. I want to be blessed. I want to be blessed. It's really actually very hard to define. 
How do you define blessing? I've read all kinds of commentaries. Like, we're, we, we think we know what it is. We know we all want it, but how do we define it? And I thought this past week, I said, you know, we really should go deep into it. And I realized it would take too long. So, so here's, here's the best definition of blessing. If you find anybody walking around and they have a Seattle Seahawks emblem on anywhere, <laughs> go up to them and ask them, what does it mean to be blessed? And they will tell you completely what it means to be blessed in the biblical definition. Some of you sports fans got that. Let's move on, okay? Endless, endless loop of blessing. I said this earlier. This is the golden chain. This is what theologians have called the golden chain. It starts with poor. It goes to mourn, then meek and seek, okay? Poor. I'm spiritually bankrupt. Poor. I'm poor. It leads to mourning. So when someone says it, it generally leads to mourning. So when you, ha- when you say you're poor in spirit, we're told the kingdom of God, Jesus says this, rushes into your life. His very kingdom, his power, his purpose, his presence rushes into your life. It leads to deep mourning, which leads to meekness, which says, you know what? Take control of my life, God. Our issue was always control. Our issue was always who's in control, me or God. And we always, it's the human condition, self. We want to be in control. And what happens? Poor, mourn, it leads to meek. God, you be in control. My Holy Spirit, you take over my life. And then that leads to seeking. It's no longer, oh, gosh, I have to follow the rules of God. Something miraculously, something supernaturally rises up in us and we no longer feel like we have to be obedient to anything. We desire from deep within our being with a thirst of God to then obey. We don't feel like we're being conformed anymore. We feel like we've been transformed. Oh my gosh, why do I hunger for the things of God so much? It all begins with being poor. Here's the thing. You can't get on the merry-go-round of blessing at point two, three, four, five, six, or seven, or eight. You can't. You can only get it on the blessing merry-go-round at the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Timing is every. Ever heard somebody say that? Timing is everything, right? Priorities matter. It's so important to have good timing. Maybe at some point in your life, you wanted to take a picture, right? And you thought, if I would have just been ready for that picture, I could have taken the picture at the perfect moment. That would have been such an awesome. Anybody ever felt that way? Oh my, if I wish, wish I had the camera ready, it could have been this awesome, awesome. Timing with pictures. The difference between an awesome shot and a so-so shot is timing. It's all about timing. Let me show you some perfect pictures, right? Perfectly timed pictures. For, look at that guy. <laughs> he just happened to have the camera ready at that moment and took a selfie when the great white shark was jumping out. Now, look, if he would have taken a couple seconds before, a couple seconds after, who cares? You got some goofy-looking guy here, and he's taking a picture with water. That's no good, but he took the exact moment. How about the second one? Camera ready, Bam. Awesome. How about the third one? Oh, yeah. Jesus juggling planes. <laughs> juggling planes. Isn't that cool? Exact moment. A couple seconds before, a couple seconds after. No good. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Last one. This is a water balloon that on this little kid's head. Look, at, isn't that perfect? It's like, it's, it's awesome. Why is that so cool? Because the timing was right. The timing is right. And here, here's the thing, everybody. Your life is going to be good. It's going to be so cool. It's going to be so awesome. But you've got to get your timing right. You've got to get first things first. First things are everything. First things matter. And that's why blessing number one matters so much. You have to get the first one right. You have to get poor in spirit right. Now, we're going to spend the rest of the time this morning talking about something that Jesus says will completely revolutionize your life. 
you've often said about yourself or somebody else. You know what? Is that all there is to Christianity? I mean, isn't there more? How come I don't see the power of God at work in my life? How come I don't see the power of God at work in other people's life? I read about it. I want to tell you what they did in the scriptures where you see the power of God at work. I want to tell you, you know, I feel like I'm trying so hard to be obedient, and sometimes I am, and sometimes I'm not. I want to talk about when God gets into your life, the kingdom of God invades your life, and all of a sudden you don't feel like you have to do anything. All of a sudden you have this hunger and thirst. It's transformational. Jesus wants to talk to us about something that means everything. He wants to talk about the first importance that will completely radically change your life and the lives of people around you. That is what the Sermon on the Mount is really all about. So the prerequisite for a good shot is to have your camera out and ready. Like, Any of those pictures I just showed you, none of them are going to happen unless the camera is out and ready. Would you agree to that? Can I get you to agree to that? Camera out and ready. Here's the prerequisite to the good life. Spiritual bankruptcy. Spiritual bankruptcy. Very important. You have to be spiritually bankrupt, all right? So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Does that mean that I'm simply saying, I need God's help? I'm poor in spirit. Who wouldn't admit to that? Oh, yeah, I need God's help. Who wouldn't admit to that? Yeah, you know, I'm not perfect. Every one of us in this room will say, yeah, I need God's help. I'm not perfect. And then you've got to think, oh, my goodness, this merry-go-round of blessing is hinged on something that's utterly simple to do, like incredibly easy to do. Who couldn't do that? What person in this world wouldn't say, yeah, I need God's help. I'll do it. I'm not perfect. Is that what poor in spirit means? Is that what the Sermon on the Mount, which kicked off a movement, a radical movement that changed the world, a movement so strong that we're told in the book of Acts that people were saying in those days, these people with this movement are turning the world upside down. Does it begin with something so small as saying, yep, I need God's help? Is that what it means? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, let me ask you this. What does it mean to be financially bankrupt? I looked it up this past week, financial bankruptcy. Ready? Financial bankruptcy means this, and I hope you don't experience it. You can't pay anything. You can't pay anything. You're powerless to pay anything. So what's the direct equivalent to our spiritual bankruptcy? That we are powerless to obey anything. Now that's a statement that rubs us the wrong way. That's a statement that when I read that, it makes me bristle. And I say, wait a minute. I can't obey anything. First of all, there, yes, yes, I can obey some things. Yes, I can. And if I believe that way and other people, God forbid, start believing that way, they're just going to say, well, I'll do anything I want with my life. It leads to chaos. I can't obey anything. Now, let's do a little quick history lesson. So much of Matthew is tied to the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, either way that you want to put it. And so you have to read the Sermon on the Mount and the entire book of Matthew through the lens of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Isaiah and Jeremiah help us tremendously in this. You read about being poor, spiritually poor, in the book of Isaiah. It talks a lot about that. So we gain tremendous understanding. Now, Isaiah... Everybody, Isaiah, check this out, is the most spiritually obedient person living in the great city of Jerusalem. Hands down. Most spiritually obedient, calling other people to be obedient. In the beginning of the book, in chapter 6, he encounters God. And when he has an encounter with God, something very unusual happens. This is what it said, Isaiah 6, 5. He says this, woe to me. He's crying. It's Isaiah. I'm crying. He's crying out. I'm ruined. You're ruined. Why are you ruined, Mr. Obedience? 
For I am a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. What in the world does it mean to have unclean lips? Like, wipe your mouth if you have unclean lips. What's your problem? So what does that mean, spiritually unclean lips? Well, what does Jesus say? Out of the abundance of what, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of, anybody know the answer to that? Heart, out of the abundance of heart. So what Isaiah is saying is, he says, the most obedient person that lives in the great city of Jerusalem, he says, I've looked all the way down to my heart when I had an encounter with God, when I was enlightened by God, he needed God's help. He's looked in his heart and said, oh my goodness, my heart is incredibly disobedient. The most obedient man in Jerusalem says, my heart is incredibly disobedient. It's completely unclean. It's polluted. Now, Jeremiah helps us out. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Woo, harsh statement. And then he goes on and says, it's without cure. It's without cure. Without cure? Without cure? Without cure. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it is without cure. Well, come on. With God's help, we can cure our heart, can't we? He says, it is without cure. My heart is without cure. And Isaiah says, I am disobedient all the way down to my heart. Look at something else he says. Isaiah 64. Really important. Think about the ramifications of this statement he is making here. For we have all become like one who is unclean, ceremonially, like a leper, and all, here's the part, ready? All of our righteousness, that means obedience. So he's going to expound upon that. Our best deeds. What's your best deeds? It's when you're in keeping with what you find right in here. All of my obedience to this right here. What about it, Isaiah? What about your obedience? All my best deeds, all my obedience of rightness and justice is what? It's a filthy rag and a polluted garment. So what Isaiah is saying is even when I'm obedient, my obedience is polluted. Now that's shocking. Now come on. Come on. I can obey some things. I have the power in me to obey some Things Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17 says, don't trust in yourself. Don't have confidence in yourself. Don't have any confidence in yourself to do the right thing. And he ends Jeremiah 17 off with talking about the heart and it's to see what he ends it off by saying, God save me. Now, this is a great picture. God save me. He didn't say, God help me. He said, God save me. Now, what helps us here is a picture of a person who's drowning. Maybe you've been in a situation where you've seen somebody in a body of water and they can't swim and they're drowning or thrashing. I've seen it before. Uh, it's shocking. Tell me, what does that person need at that moment? Do they need a coach? Hey, look, drowning person, just kick your legs and arms and, you know, do, those, do that. Hey, drowning person, here you go. Here's a manual on how to swim. Take it and read it. You know, if you'll spend 15 minutes reading it, you're going to be okay. Do they need inspiration? They need somebody to come up to them. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Swim. You can do it. No, 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 no. They need a savior because they can't do anything themselves. No, notice that? They can't do anything themselves. They are what? Dead. They're dead. As the Bible says, we are dead. It says it repeatedly. We're dead. They need a savior. So here's the thing. When you are financially bankrupt, you are powerless to pay anything. Now write this down. Here's what being poor in spirit means. And it's a troubling statement, actually. I am powerless to obey anything. Powerless. Now, here's the thing, everybody. That statement doesn't sit right with me. And I'm imagining for most of us in this room, it doesn't sit right with you either. Hey, John, look, man, I'm powerless to obey a lot of things, and I screw up all the time, and I'm not perfect, but, dude, there are some things that I can obey. So let's get it right. Now, here's what Jesus does to us. Let's just have a conversation. I, I, there's no way 
to over-exaggerate the importance of the Sermon on the Mount and step number one, first thing. For, there's no way that we could over-exaggerate the importance of this being radically important to our life, to us actually living the life that Jesus Christ is calling us to live and us experiencing. Look, here's, here's my experience. My experience with talking to people over a couple decades of ministry is everybody is looking for two things. Two. Two. Boiled down to two. They want a personal encounter with God and to be radically transformed with God. They're looking to... You all have come according to studies. And the number one thing you're looking for this morning is, is there a God and can I encounter him? Can I have an impersonal encounter with God, number one? And number two, after that encounter, can I be a part of making a difference in this world? Those are the two things that we're looking for. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount in step number one leads us to. You can't start with two, and you can't start with five. You have to start with one. You have to start with being spiritually bankrupt. Now, there's two ways to approach this, everybody. You can either uh, minimize the Bible way down here and say, you know, oh, man, it's all, it's all about Jesus, and Jesus is all about love, and he's all about mercy and grace. Oh, come on, don't beat yourself up. It's okay. Jesus forgives you. You know, it's all about grace. I mean, some churches are so into grace, they like put it right in their name. You know what I'm saying? They just all, we all about, all about, all about that grace. All about that grace. Okay. You could do that. You could do that, minimize it, or you could like maximize it. You could say, oh my goodness, man, everything in the word of God, all the laws, even the tiniest laws in God's word, you got to obey them, right? And then we get fearful about the hellfire and brimstone people that come along and they're like, "Mm -mm -mm," you know, really doing that. Which way does Jesus go with this? Does he split it down the middle? Does he minimize? Does he maximize? Well, you tell me, let's go read it, 517, Matthew 517. This is quite... Interesting. Ready for this? Do not think, Jesus speaking, do not think I've come to abolish the law. What's he saying there? Don't think I've come to minimize the law in Matthew 5, 17 or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I haven't come to minimize them. I've come to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Check this out, everybody. Think about the ramifications of this. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He goes on and says that our obedience has to surpass the Pharisees. Now, I know if you're familiar with the Bible, or maybe if you're even not, you've heard the term, don't be a Pharisee. Pharisees take a really bad rap. But the deal with the Pharisees is they live in a very tight-knit community, very rigid community. They're all about obedience. Like They were far more obedient than you and I will ever be to the Bible. They dedicated their life. I know they take a bad rep, but they're far more obedient than I will ever be to the Bible. Which route was Jesus go? Does he, does he minimize the law or does he, ma- he maximize it? He like maximizes it through the roof. All about the law. Now, what do we do with that? And if that isn't bad enough, then he gets really personal. It's really personal. Here's what he says. Matthew 5, 21. Let's talk about, let's talk about murder for a second. So he goes into this string where he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. So he takes it deeper. He takes it to a personal level. And this is what he says. Think about what this is doing to us. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. Good, man. Not many murderers in this house. So we're all all feeling really good. Do not murder. Excellent. But anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay. That's not me because I haven't murdered anybody. I'm not going to murder anybody. But I tell you the truth that anyone who is angry with his brother, will be subject 
to judgment. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He is saying that murder is the same thing as getting angry. Now, you have these nice acorns, and you've been wondering, why in the world do we have this acorn? It's time to get the acorns out. Time to think about the acorn here. So um, what is this acorn? It's not actually real. It's fake. But if it was real, what does the acorn become? A mighty oak tree. All the potential in the world is in this little tiny seed to become a great and mighty oak tree. And Jesus Christ is saying all the potential in the world is in your heart, a seed of anger to become murder. Look, you and I can control our conduct. The question Jesus is asking is, can you cure your heart? What about the seeds of sin? So you tell me, you tell me, can you get rid of the hint, a hint, even the hint of anger and frustration in your heart? Can you get rid of it? Thank you very much. We can't. We can't. We're going to have communion here in a little bit, and somebody's going to cut you off in the communion line. And you're in church, and we're talking about, you know, loving everybody and Jesus and all that kind of stuff. I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. Can you get rid of the seeds? You understand? Jesus is locking us down. This is like University of Virginia basketball here, lockdown defense, okay? I'm hoping some of you watch sports, all right? All right? They held Georgia Tech to 28 points. This is suff- he is suffocating us. Jesus is suffering. He's saying he, he's putting on an argument so airtight that we will realize when we're done with his Sermon on the Mount that it is impossible to obey anything because we can't cure the seeds. You can control your conduct, right? You can deal with the big oak tree, but can you deal with this? I want you to keep this for the next eight weeks and it be a constant reminder. Put it on your nightstand, Put it in your bathroom, plaster it on the wall, somewhere where you can see it when you first wake up in the morning. And remember that this, if you'll deal with, I'm spiritually bankrupt, Jesus, I can't obey anything. Those words, that acknowledgement has always sparked a spiritual revolution. There you go. This is what the church is meant to be. You're wondering, man, why can't I meet a real Christian? Why can't I be a real Christian? I'm telling you, it starts with I am powerless to obey anything. We have to deal with the seeds. All right, anger. So you're not an angry person, but you still deal with anger. We all know that. Let's talk about lust for a moment. All right, how about that one? Here we go. Jesus gets into lust. He's getting real personal. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Good. If I committed adultery, I would be murdered. So I already got both of them down, pat, boom. There's not a doubt in my mind. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully... Nah, nah. Guys, just keep your eyes straight ahead. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Are you serious? Are you serious? Who's going to say that you can eradicate all anger and frustration from your heart? What man in this room is going to say, oh, yeah, I've eradicated all lust in my heart? And Jesus says, obedience goes right down. He said, I'm not interested in your conduct. I'm interested in what's in your heart. And can you get out that out of your heart? Can you say, I'm completely obeying? This is when you understand the seeds. Then you start saying, oh, now I understand why I can't obey anything. Because he's interested, is my heart obedient? Can you do that? 
Can he do that? He continues on. Matthew uh, 5, 38. Let's just read it. This is great. This is great. This is going to help you tomorrow morning on the commute. People can't around here can't drive in the snow. You're going to be very upset. Ready? Ready? It's going to help you at work. Okay? It's going to help you pull out of our parking lot. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist any, don't resist anybody trying to take advantage of you. Don't do that. Don't even resist them. If someone strikes you on the one cheek, say, here, here go. How about this one? Turn the other to them also. And if anyone wants to sue you, lawyers, if anyone wants to sue you, let them take your tunic. Let them have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, say to them, I'll go with you too. Give to the one who asked you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Are you serious? Are you serious? The seeds, everybody. I'm not talking about conduct. Let's talk about what Jesus is talking about. Let's talk about what's in our heart. Can you get rid of the seeds in your heart? Because that's what it's really... Oh, we can be nice all day. Uh, you know what? Believe it or not, I'm a fairly nice person. <laughs> I can control my conduct and act civil. But I'm telling you right now, studying this for the last few months, I am hopeless. There is not a thing I've realized I can do with these seeds. And when I realize it's about the seeds, I realize I'm powerless to obey. Let's, let's, let's just do one more, okay? Uh, 43, Matthew 5, 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's the first thing I think of. <laughs> Somebody mistreats me, I'm like, oh, come, come here, brother, let me just love on you a little bit. <laughs> right, go ahead. You smack me a couple times while you're at it. Let's just love. I, I, I don't have the twinge of, I don't have any, there's no lust in my heart, there's no anger, there's no frustration. I don't want to get any ever any revenge, not even a hint of it. How many people raise their hands and say, yep, I never have the hint of any of that in my life? Final statement, Matthew 5, 40. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, therefore, just as God. Be God. Be holy. Be holy just like God. Can you do that? Everybody, the revolution that you read about that starts in the Bible and throughout church history when the Holy Spirit moves in a mighty way and a mighty spiritual awakening takes place, it always starts right here. Always. Without failure, foundation of every great move of God begins with spiritual bankruptcy. And the problem is, is that we're very reluctant to say it. Something rises up in me. When I even say it, I'm powerless to obey anything. Something rises up and says, don't say that. And please don't preach about it. Because if you do, you're going to have chaos all over your church. People are going to do anything they want. And Jesus says, no, that's not what's going to happen. Look, not everybody loves the Sermon on the Mount. I just told you all these people. Matthew McConaughey wants to hold you by the hand and swing. I, good, excellent guy. I'm not coming down. It's great. Well, I, I hope he does hold your hand and you spin around in bliss looking at each other. It's about an awesome thing. Awkward for me, but awesome for you, right? <laughs> but not everybody loves the Sermon on the Mount. We have become so familiar and hold up its ideals and we don't see its shock value. There was a group of students at Texas A&M University. Again, this is our grace here at this church that we allow Texans inside of the walls here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Professor Virginia Stem Owens gave her freshman composition class an assignment. I want you to write an essay. I want you to read and then write me an essay on the Sermon on the Mount. Most of them, even though they were in the Bible Belt of Texas, had never even heard of the Sermon on the Mount. They were all unfamiliar. And so finally, we can have somebody unfamiliar with the Sermon on the Mount that could really react to it. And you know what they said? This is what they said. Quote, I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect. 
You know what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous British preacher, he said, you know, if anybody really reads the Sermon on the Mount with an open mind, they will cry out to God, God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. My question is, is do you feel that way? Because unless, you, unless you're like, oh my gosh, unless you feel the weight of it, then you're not really understanding what it's saying. Let me give you another student. This is awesome. Look at what this student says. Quote, the things asked in the Sermon on the Mount are absurd. <laughs> to look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid unhuman statement that I have ever heard in my life. That's how I feel about the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, Professor Owens kind of uh, wraps up all this thing by saying this. She says, finally, finally, everybody, biblical illiteracy has come to the point where people are able to respond to Jesus without filtering it through 2,000 years of cultural haze. You know, this is why I said last week us church people are at a tremendous disadvantage. We're at a tremendous, we've become so familiar with the things of God and his word. We don't see it for its shock value, for its countercultural. We don't see what it's shocking statements. There's not a person in this room who has any hope in their life of dealing with the seeds. Poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt people. We've become too familiar. You know what? When, when someone's uh, writing a scroll, uh, a Torah scroll, you know, the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Yes. When they're doing that, there are a couple things they have to have. Check this out. First of all, they have to have a completely perfect scroll in front of them. This takes them about 2,000 hours to copy. Got to have a perfect scroll in front of them. And then, after they've spent like 1,999 hours and they're down to the last statement, if they make one comma wrong, one little mistake. They have to take the thing and throw it completely away. You know why? Because unless it's utterly perfect, it's utterly imperfect. Have you ever wondered why Adam and Eve, after eating a piece of fruit, <laughs> come on, piece of fruit, we got all this havoc that's in this world from a piece of fruit. Are you serious? Here's the thing. God is holy. He's perfect. And unless you're utterly perfect, then you're utterly imperfect. And that's what Isaiah finally saw when he had this encounter with God, the most obedient man in Jerusalem. He has this encounter. He's like, oh my gosh, now I understand. I'm utterly imperfect. My heart, my lips are unclean because my heart is completely disobedient. It's a radical, radical statement that we have before us. We have to be completely perfect. I am powerless to obey anything. Now, here's the thing. I'm almost done. Let me think about this. Here's, here's what I go to. If I was to say to God, I'm powerless to obey anything, my, the first thing, the very first thing that comes to my mind is, well, then I'm just going to be carefree. I'm like, whatever. I'm not going to care anymore. Like, so what? Do whatever I want. Live the way I want. I mean, that's the stupid thing to say. It's utterly stupid. Like, I'm just like that university student. It's utterly st stupid. How can anything good? But Jesus says, actually, the reverse happens. That if you omit your spiritual poverty, your spiritual bankruptcy before God and say you're powerless to obey anything, what happens is his kingdom, that's the promise, his kingdom will come rushing into your life. The power and the presence and the purpose of God. Write that down if you want to. It's really important. The kingdom means the power, the presence, and the very purpose of God. Who would like to live a life of purpose with God? Who would like to live a life experiencing the power of God? Who would like to live a life experiencing the mighty presence of God? The power, purpose, of presence of God comes rushing into our life. And now, instead of me saying, who cares? Do whatever you want. Live any way you want. All of a sudden, God's kingdom comes rushing to my life. 
And it leaves me to deep mourning. You ever see somebody who says, oh, yeah, I can't obey anything. And they're like, oh, whatever. They never got it. They never got it because somebody who truly gets it mourns. Step two, mourns. You have a deep humility about that. Step two. Step three, you're meek. Meek, come and control my life, almighty God, because I realize I can't control my own. It all starts with being poor in spirit. And finally, you hunger and thirst for the things of God. You ever had that in your life? You ever experienced it? All this good stuff that I just mentioned, all that good life starts with saying, I am powerless to obey anything. It doesn't start anywhere else. Here is your starting point, and here is your continuing point. You never come off that point, according to Paul. Ever, ever, ever come off of that point. We're spiritually bankrupt. This has always, as I said, led to two important things throughout history, biblical history and church history. It's always led to a powerful personal encounter with God, and it's always led, always led to social change. And I want to wrap that up, this up by saying this to you real quick. All right, first of all, book of Acts. Well, let's back all the way up into Isaiah. Isaiah experienced this in a powerful way. He had a personal, powerful encounter with God when he realized he was a person with an unclean heart. Most obedient man had a credit, disobedient heart, had a powerful work of God and a powerful encounter with God in his life. Lived a life of power, purpose, and presence. Huge. Okay, Acts, book of Acts. This was the basis of the foundation of the greatest spiritual awakening this world has ever seen ever seen. They said about the church in the book of Acts, these people are turning the world completely upside down. We can't believe it. Social changes galore, galore. Social changes. The social changes that happen in society of caring for the poor and caring for the sick and ministering to people were phenomenal. It turned that whole Roman empire upside down. That's how pervasive it was. And Paul says, no one is obedient no one is obedient. You know what else he says in Romans 3? He says, no one seeks God. And you're like, hey, John, I'm sure he's talking about somebody else, but I seek God. Well, I don't know what the word no one means to you, but he says, no one even seeks God and no one's obedient. The basis of every great awakening is firmly rooted and I, Jesus, am powerless to obey anything. I'm spiritually bankrupt. You try it. Try it. I gave you these acorns for a reason. Put it somewhere prominent and let it remind you for the next eight weeks to begin your day. Try it. Jesus, I'm powerless to obey anything. Fill me with your kingdom. Give it a shot. What would happen if for the next eight weeks leading up to Easter, everybody, everybody in this room, everybody was at the 930 service, everybody here at the 11, what if we all did it? What if we all did it for the next eight weeks? Would it spark a movement so mighty and great that it would turn this city upside down? Jesus says it will. Do we believe him or does it seem insane? Uh, Martin Luther, great reformation, totally rooted in spiritual bankruptcy, trying his hardest to be an obedient person, come, leads to great reform. John, uh, John Wesley, England. He is so obedient, such an obedient person. He finally gets it. I'm spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing I can do to obey. He's radically changed. He said he felt, he felt the power of God descend upon him when he finally said that. Have you felt the power of God descend upon you? He said, I felt the power of God descend upon me when he embraced that. There's a book written. It's called England Before and After John Wesley. You know why? Because England was radically transformed, right? Abolition of slavery, powerful against all that money that slavery generated and that force 
from that movement of the Spirit of God. You want to change this world? Here it is. This is where it starts, Jesus says. Jonathan Edwards, most famous sermon in American history, sinners in the hands of angry God. He firmly believed everything was rooted in that incredible time in spiritual bankruptcy. Can I give you one more? One, one closing one. The last great spiritual awakening this country has ever seen. Let's look at the picture. There it is. Psychedelic Jesus. June 1971. It's called the Jesus People Movement. It was, became so popular, so radical, that it hit the cover, the front cover of Time magazine. It was dubbed Top 10, one of the top 10 news stories of 1971. It caused radical changes in the world. Calvary Chapel. Some of you heard of the Calvary Chapel movement, the Calvary Chapel Church of Chuck Smith. Man, that guy baptized thousands of hippies on the beaches of California. Like, it started a movement that went all the way around the world. Calvary Chapel, Vineyard Churches, maybe you're familiar, all that started. The reason we are playing guitars and drums here this morning is because of the Jesus people, because they totally changed our music. It was a radical time. Can I tell you where it started? Real quick. We're almost done. Almost done. It's okay. It's cold outside. You don't have anywhere to go, right? <laughs> I just got to tell you this. You're going to like, are you serious, John? Yes, I'm serious. Here's, here's what happened. So uh, this woman, Elizabeth Wise, started attending church. She'd go to church, boom, high as a kite. Hippie, San Francisco. Uh, really into smoking marijuana, really into LSD. She'd go to church, hear about Jesus, started talking to her husband about Jesus. She's going to this real conservative Baptist church out in San Francisco. And they didn't kind of know what to do with her. Anyway, she started talking to her husband. Now, her husband is just living a life, man. He just, he, he, he's loving it. He said this. I think I wrote this quote down. He said, his days were spent. This guy, former Navy guy, was living on the, uh, working on the docks of San Francisco. He spent his days with America Cup captains, hanging out with yogis, Buddhist, anarchist, and communist. That was his life. It doesn't get any better than that. Smoking dope, getting high on LSD all the time, doesn't get any better than that. Well, she says, you should start reading about Jesus. He starts reading about Jesus, and he realizes, oh, my gosh, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm spiritually, I'm powerless to obey anything. He said, and so after this, God, he feels, God says to him, you need to go to all your friends at that big pot party coming up, and you need to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord of my life. So him and his wife take a huge hit of LSD. <laughs> I'm not making this up. And they go to the party, and he stands up and says, Jesus is the Lord of my life. Praise Jesus. And then he goes to church the next morning and does the same thing. You can read about this story out in San Francisco. There was a guy who organized an LSD party for the sole purpose of evangelizing all of his friends. Come on in. Let's get... Listen, I'm not advocating this, but I think you would, have to, you would have to admit if you all were high on LSD, it would totally change your experience here this morning, Right? <laughs> Here's the reason I'm telling you this. That's chaos. That's crazy. You've got to clean your act up. The little Baptist church they went into, half the members immediately left. And we're not into that stuff, boy. But you know, because of that spiritual bankruptcy in the midst of LSD and marijuana, that God sparked the last, greatest, powerful outpouring of His Spirit that this nation has ever seen. Now, I'm hoping you're not high on LSD this morning, although you might wish you were. <laughs> what would happen if you prayed that prayer? Hmm? I want to ask the communion team to come up, music team to come up. We're going to end with communion, okay? And I'm just going to explain real quick, and then, and then we're, we're going to go. Let me tell you what's getting ready to happen right now. So communion, there are five different locations here. There's going to be a 
a couple people here, and a couple over here, and then there, there, and there. And in a minute, music team's going to start playing a bunch of Jesus people songs. And uh, we're going to celebrate what we call communion. You'll come up, and there's going to be a tray in front of you. And in it, it's going to have... I'll show you what it's going to have, right? Could I borrow that? No, I, you hold on to the tray. Sorry. And let me just show this. Thank you very much. Great. Oh, I'm sorry. Messed it up. Okay. It's going to have a wafer. It's going to have a cup. The body of Christ, the blood of Christ. Now think about this for a second. Jesus didn't come to give his body and to shed his blood because you needed a helper. Because you needed a motivational speaker in your life. He did this because things are serious. You needed to be saved and rescued. It's powerful. Some of us here this morning were like, you know what? I like Jesus. I like the ideals. But this whole deal about Jesus Christ being the only way rubs me the wrong way. And here's what I want you to know. Because some of you are grappling right now about whether or not you're going to accept Jesus Christ as being the only way. So can I say something real quick about that? Real quick before we take communion. And by the way, communion is open to everybody here. You want to take communion? Take communion. We encourage you to. If you struggle with Jesus Christ being the only I know people have said to me, you know what, John? I like Jesus. I will never become a Christian. I will never accept Jesus as Savior because I completely disagree with him being the only way. How could it be the only way? There's got to be other ways. How could Jesus just get it right? How could Christians just get it right? Here's what you need to know. You think that for some reason you're drawing from a menu of different options and Jesus Christ being the only way. You're not. There's no other story like it. There's no other religion that talks about God coming down to rescue us and taking our place on the cross. You're dealing with a menu that only has one item on it. There's no other story like it. Read it all over the world. There's not another story where God takes our place and takes on flesh. You are not picking between Jesus and something else in the other world. Say, I get it right. There's only one story out there like it. Second thing, if you have a problem with Jesus being the only way, I want you to know you're in excellent company. It bristles me, but... You don't really care about being in my company. Here's, here's, you know, the good company you're in. You're in the company of Jesus Christ. Some of you know the story. When he was in the garden, when he was in the garden, he said, Father, isn't there another way? You have a problem with Jesus being the only way? Jesus felt the same way. And he said, Father, isn't there another way? And the Father says, This is the only way. This is the way of love. And Jesus says, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll give my body. I'll give my blood. There's not another story else there like that. I just want to encourage you as we close this one thing. Would you please consider taking that acorn, putting it in a prominent place? My God, the whole world needs a move of God. Would you consider saying, Jesus, I'm powerless to obey anything. Would you instead flood me with your kingdom? Would you take Jesus at his word for eight weeks and see what might happen in your life? Let's pray for this. Heavenly Father, um, wow, Jesus... You have been very gracious and kind. Thank you that you gave your body and you gave your blood to rescue us. Bless the eating of this bread and the drinking of this cup. And may all of us who are right now dealing with Jesus being our Savior come to that point where we can cross that line and say yes. And would all of us never get off the mark of the first thing first and say, Jesus, I am powerless to obey. Fill me with your kingdom, your power, your purpose, and your presence. Revolutionize my life. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.